This is Ten Plus podcast. I'm Joanne Ten. This is called the Interviews of Notables and Influencers. And today I'm honored to have Professor Jason Wittenberg of Political Science at UC Berkeley. He's going to share his insights about Putin's war in Ukraine, Eastern Europe, the future of democracy, anti-Semitism, dictatorship, authoritarianism, and what can be done specifically to protect and improve democracy in the United States. Professor Wittenberg earned his PhD from MIT. He focuses on Eastern European politics. Thank you so much. Uh, may I call you Jason? Yes, please, Joanne, thank you. And sure. thank you for having me on the podcast. It's a pleasure. My great honor. So the first question is Putin's war in Ukraine. Uh, personally, um, when he aggressively, brutally just marched into Ukraine, I was completely infuriated and I uh, immediately made it clear to the world of my absolute support of Ukrainians. I cannot see the outcome for Putin to win this. The world democracy is hanging in the balance. We really must defeat him. But now it's been a year and it looks like a proxy war between the US and the EU and Russia. Um, hypothetically, I have these two questions. Even though I hate to see that, but hypothetically, what will happen if Russia wins? What will happen if Russia loses? Okay, uh, thanks. Those are really great questions. Everybody's asking them. It's, uh, you know, all over the place. Uh, so let's just uh, dig into this a bit. Um, so you mentioned a proxy war. Um, you know, traditionally a proxy, a proxy war is when each side has a client state and then the two clients fight each other. So this was like the Cold War where we each, the Soviet Union and the US uh, each supported their group say in an African country and then those groups were fighting uh, each other. So in a sense, this war between Ukraine and Russia is kind of partly a proxy war uh, because uh, you know some people talk about how uh, the U.S. and the EU are, uh, you know, arming uh, and uh, helping Ukraine uh, in order to uh, weaken Russia in a way that they wouldn't uh, normally be able to do. Um, at the same time, the proxy nature of it is part of the reason, uh, notwithstanding the support, that there's been some resistance to providing Ukraine with even more lethal arms, and definitely the reason that NATO countries, so I would say it's more NATO than the EU, by the way, uh, uh, NATO is not putting troops on the ground, so as not to have a direct confrontation between Russia and NATO. So uh, if you will, it's a little bit of throat clearing on the meaning of a proxy war. Now back to your questions, uh, you know, what if Putin wins? Uh, I hate to be academic about it, um, but we need to define what constitutes a win for Putin because it's not, uh, there are different options. One of the options uh, is the Russian incorporation of Eastern Ukrainian territories into Russia. So uh, these territories with a large uh, uh, Russian speaking minor uh, minority where there was already a low level kind of insurgency against the Kiev government going back many years. 
So one is incorporating those uh, into Russia or at least uh, separating from Ukraine and then having them as be like a puppet state of uh, uh, of Russia. So that's one way uh, 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 to, to win this war. For Russia. Uh, for Russia, sorry, yes, for Russia. Um, installing a puppet regime in Kiev that does Russia's bidding, so a, a pliant government in Kiev is maybe a bigger way to uh, win this war for Russia. And then the biggest victory of all would be reincorporating uh, Ukraine writ large into the Russian con into the Russian Federation. So uh, now uh, these uh, outcomes have different probabilities of occurring. So let's um, uh, uh, you know talk about, for example, uh, the most likely one, uh, if Russia wins, the most likely one would be uh, somehow separating these Russian majority territories from Ukraine and perhaps incorporating them into Russia. So the more limited victory seems more likely uh, right now, given the fact that uh, Russia has been badly bloodied by this war. Uh, there seems to be significant uh, opposition uh, within Russia to the war. And so it's unlikely they can manage one of these uh, more striking victories that I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. So uh, what if they win? Um, I think uh, if Russia wins for sure, Russia will be emboldened to further intervene in other former Soviet republics as a way of restoring the losses it endured with the collapse of the Soviet Union. So uh, Belarus, uh, for sure, uh, you know, there are Central Asian republics, uh, Caucasian republics. Uh, the only limitation I would put on that is the Baltic states, which are actually in NATO uh, and therefore a much riskier uh, proposition. So Russia will be emboldened to, um, uh, to act more aggressively in its neighborhood. That's the primary consequence of a Russian win. Uh, now, if Russia fails, which uh, I take to mean, again, uh, a return to the pre-war status quo would be a failure. So not getting any of the gains that they earned during the war would, would count as a failure. I think here the implications are harder to predict. Uh, but I am confident that two things that get talked about a lot as possibilities are not going to happen. The first one is there uh, won't be a mass uprising against the regime. There is a uh, no uh, movement that could that could coordinate this. So the opposition is totally fragmented. Uh, there's no mass movement that might affect this. And secondly, even if there were such a mass movement, it is not clear that clear that the Russian people would want it to happen. So it's very unclear. Uh, whether on the whole uh, uh, this is what is desired because that could in itself bring a kind of chaos. Uh, uh, you know, you don't know what the next uh, leadership is going to look like. At least Putin is a known quantity. So that's one thing. The second thing that is floating around is that Russia itself might fall apart. So what people don't appreciate uh, that don't focus on the region is that uh, you know the Soviet Union was a multinational state that fell apart. 
into its constituent republics, uh, you know, 30, uh, 30 plus years ago. Uh, what people don't realize is that Russia itself is a multi-ethnic uh, country. There are a lot of ethnicities, a lot of languages, uh, a lot of heterogeneity within Russia itself. And so people are saying, well, Russia itself will fall apart into a kind of Slavic uh, core and then a non-Slavic uh, periphery. And I think this is also extremely unlikely. Uh, Russians are... Uh, very uh, sensitive about their territorial integrity, uh, not the least of which is because of the collapse of the Soviet Union. And uh, if there were any threat of that, the Russians would not hesitate to use, as they did in Chechnya uh, earlier, a uh, uh, very brutal force to put it down, which would make Ukraine, Ukraine seem like a walk in the park. Mm. Wow. Wow. So it doesn't look like Putin is going to give up after a whole year. It's in his DNA to do whatever he can to make the war, however long it takes for him to win. And whatever casualty, do you agree? Uh, yes, I agree that that's his intention. That casualties... If he stops the war, it won't be because of casualties. Yes. Let me put it that way. Yes. Um, in the beginning, those soldiers were preparing for a parade. They they thought it was a cakewalk. Okay. Uh, so he underestimated the West. Now, uh, Biden, I appreciate his prudence. He is not authorizing using American uh, fighter jets because he does not want to escalate it into a World War III. That's correct. I don't have a crystal ball, but- Neither do I, by the way. <laughs> how, how is this going to end? Uh, we, don't, we don't know at this point. Uh, it could, uh, you know, it could, it could be the kind of a conflict uh, that drags on for years until, you know, one side tires of the conflict and, uh, uh, you know, uh, finds a way to save face uh, and end the conflict. And that would basically have to be Putin. It might be at some point actually Ukraine. So, uh, uh, you know, uh, right now, uh, Ukraine's intention seems to be to not just uh, get the Russians to retreat, but for example, to recover Crimea, which was taken over uh, by Russia in 2014, which some people mark the beginning of the conflict in 2014 when Russia took over Crimea. So, uh, you know, Ukraine could do some things that would increase the probability of a negotiated solution by not insisting on, uh, you know, uh, uh, getting uh, Crimea returned to Ukraine. Yes, that's what Henry Kissinger suggested as well. Okay. Yeah. So it's not a, uh, you know, if you're, the thing is at this point in the conflict, uh, neither side is prepared to kind of make concessions. Yes. Now that leads to my next question. Yes. China, as of today, is trying to be a broker, to broker peace between Russia and Ukraine. Yeah. 
but the West is deeply suspicious, uh, since, in my opinion, China is at least is the secret lover, quote unquote, of, of Russia. Okay, and China was blaming the U.S. hegemony for the Ukraine war that started by Putin. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Uh, Ray Dalio, in his book called Principles for Dealing with the Changing World Order, he seems to predict the downfall of the U.S. and the rise of China. And of course, that should be discounted by his decades of being entrusted by China with investing China's sovereign fund, from which he got extremely wealthy. Okay, so um, now China is pretty assertive, to say the least, in this regard. And of course, Russia and China, given their close relationship, um, maybe... Russia will allow China that prominence of uh, brokering peace, and what do you, what role do you see China will be playing in this war, in this Putin's war, and in the future world order? Okay, um, so as far as the war goes, uh, to the extent uh, China can portray itself as a kind of neutral party. Uh, I don't see any issue uh, with China acting as a mediator, uh, you know, in the war uh, uh, and gaining whatever prestige it's going to gain as a result of uh, in the event of successfully mediating an agreement that is acceptable to both sides. Uh, I don't have a problem with that. Probably U.S. foreign policy elites have a problem with that uh, because uh for the last, uh, you know, 60 or, you know, more years, it's been the U.S. Uh, which has been the broker uh, between, you know, among various conflicts around the world, such as in the Middle East uh, and, elf and elsewhere. So the U.S. would not be happy because it's essentially ceding to China some of this, uh, you know, world leadership that, uh, uh, you know, that the U.S. had enjoyed for decades before. Um, you know, which leads me to your second question, which is the, you know, the rise of China. So I haven't read Dalio's book. Uh, and so I don't know quite what he means by the downfall of, uh, of, of the U.S. So, uh, you know, the, the U.S. is still by, uh, as far as the numbers that I know, uh, is still by some trillions of dollars in absolute terms the largest economy in the world. And that will not last uh, for very long uh, given uh, relative growth rates between US and China, but it still is. Uh, secondly, on a per capita basis, uh, uh, China is not uh, a particularly wealthy uh, you know, country given its size. Uh, and so in terms of wealth, uh, well, the U.S. isn't the most isn't the wealthiest either per capita, but it's way ahead of China, as many other countries are. Uh, furthermore, uh, notwithstanding uh, China's, uh, you know, uh, uh, increased devotion of um, resources to building up their military, I think uh, in military terms, the U.S. is unquestionably uh, the strongest uh, military in the world. The only military that can fight uh, uh, simultaneous wars 10,000 10, miles away from the U.S. mainland. Mm -hmm. 
uh, you know, either in the Eastern Hemisphere or the Western Hemisphere. The U.S. can do that. No other country in the world possesses uh, that capability. And uh, it will take decades uh, for another country to uh, develop that capability. So uh, I, I don't say that uh, in the future, the U.S. isn't going to decline. I think there are a lot of uh, reasons having to do with domestic U.S. Uh, conditions that suggest that that might be true. Uh, 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 but I don't see it happening, not only in the short term, but in the short to medium, uh, in, the, in the short to medium term. Okay. So Putin in the 90s tried to become a NATO member out of whatever motive of his, but the West declined. Uh, I think the U.S. particularly, we didn't trust him. Okay, does the West have any responsibility in "quote unquote" cornering Putin into an aggressive and brutal dictator? Yeah. So um, there are two sides to this. Uh, there's a Russian side and a U.S. side. Um, so each believes its own uh, narrative is is uh, correct. So so let me give you my my sort of take on these uh, on this issue. Uh, so first off, let me say, I do believe that the West engaged in activities uh, following the collapse of the Soviet Union that Moscow could rightly perceive as aggressive or threatening. Foremost, the expansion of NATO, not so much the rejection of Russia, but the expansion uh, of NATO, not just to former uh, Russian or Soviet rather, allied states, such as Poland and Hungary and Bulgaria, but to former Soviet republics like the Baltic states. So literally bringing NATO, uh, you know, right to Russia's borders. Of course, it, uh, NATO, even in the Cold War, was on Russia's borders uh, in northern Norway. So uh, it was on the Soviet border in northern Norway. So it's not new for NATO uh, uh, to border uh but uh, this seemed, uh, you know, even more of an aggressive uh, posture on the part of the U.S. Yes. And then uh, the U.S. also flirted with the possibility of Georgia and especially Ukraine on their potential memberships. So one thing to keep in mind about this expansion and the potential memberships is that the uh, request for these things are coming from those countries. The US isn't knocking on Kiev's door and saying, do you want to be a member of NATO? It's Kiev knocking on Washington's door saying we would like to be a member of NATO. And that's even more true for the Baltic states, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and the East European states who have a long history with Russia and know uh, what Russia is capable of. Mm -hmm. So, uh, it wasn't uh, so much a U.S. initiative as their initiative, uh, which we then had to say, you know, yes or no to. Mm. Now, uh, keep in mind that the initial expansion of NATO occurred in 1999, i.e. a decade, uh, after a decade of Russian weakness and humiliation after the collapse of the Soviet Union. So this was like... Uh, kicking a dog while it's down. Russia had already been, you know, had gone through economic collapse. 
it was humiliated because it lost its you know its sphere of influence and it and it uh, declined as a global power. And then on top of all of that, uh, uh, the states in its former military alliance joined the other side. So, uh, you know, you could see why. So, so I understand Moscow's perspective. However, uh, I do not that think that this, you know, somehow made Putin, who otherwise would have been a happy collaborator, into uh, the dictator he ultimately became. So Putin came to power in 2000, the year 2000, to, among other things, restore Russia's dignity and influence. That would have happened with or without NATO expansion. Hmm. In my opinion. Okay. So mm -hmm. the NATO expansion maybe made it a little worse, but it would have happened anyway. Right. Um, Madeleine Albright, she was accredited for expanding NATO to Russia's border. So, well, truth has many facets, you know. They, there are people who will argue, yeah, even though you said we did not knock on Ukraine's door and inviting them, but we were pretty um, pushy in that regard. That made Putin feel threatened and cornered. We we have to uh, distinguish uh, between NATO membership as such, and for example, in the case of Ukraine, uh, the U.S. effort uh, to uh, prevent uh, Ukraine from having a pro-Russian government. So in other words, whatever role the U.S. had uh, in uh, this uh, Ukrainian uprising, which led to the, uh, which led to a, a duly elected pro-Russian Ukrainian leader fleeing the country and being replaced by a pro-Western leader. Mm-hmm, yeah, but-, but that's, that's not NATO, so, that's another kind of, uh, you know, you can consider that another kind of aggression, yes. But even then, uh, the other argument, so I would stand by my other argument that, uh, you know, no one uh, forced, you know, Putin to invade Ukraine. Ultimately, that's Putin's decision to pursue that tactic as opposed to another tactic. Right. And also, we're not going to deal with what ifs, what should have, so, you know, even if, hypothetically, West accepted Putin during the weak moments of Russia, accepted Putin's request to join NATO, even if we took Russia in. Yes. There is no guarantee that he will not have become a dictator today. Uh that is that is true, and I would uh, you know that would be an implication of my argument is that he would have uh, he would have done what he did anyway. Anyways, yes. yes. Okay. So yeah. uh, with pro Putin European countries like Belarus and Hungary, what are your predictions about their involvement if the Ukraine war escalates? Yeah. So um, first of all. I wouldn't call Hungary and Belarus uh, the countries of Hungary and Belarus pro-Putin. Uh, 
as such. I wouldn't even call their leaders pro-Putin. Uh, there's a stronger case to be made that their leaders are pro-Putin than that the countries are uh, in terms of sympathy, uh, uh, you know, popular sympathy. Um, although it's true that both countries, uh, particularly since the Ukraine war began and also before this Ukraine war began, uh, have shown more reluctance to join on the anti-Putin bandwagon than other countries in the region. So that, that is definitely true. Uh, I see this uh, more in terms of interests than having a kind of, uh, uh, you know, pro-Putin sympathy. So uh, both countries rely on Putin for energy, mm -hmm. or I should say rely on Russia for energy. And in the case of Belarus, uh, as far as I know, the energy is heavily subsidized. So I think Hungary pays full price. Uh, Hungary's in NATO and the EU. It's going to pay full price. But I think Belarus gets a deal because it's a much poorer country. Mm -hmm. So uh, in this case, I think the leaderships are uh, naturally taking a more measured approach. So, uh, you know, if the country's supplying you with oil, uh, you don't uh, thereby, uh, you know, slap that country in the face. Uh, it's just bad. It's just bad diplomacy. Uh, for example, uh, on the anti-Putin side, both countries are hosting um, Ukrainian refugees. And actually, I believe both countries are also hosting young Russian refugees that are fleeing, uh, you know, the draft and other things. So not everything they do is pro-Putin. I mean, that's uh, kind of an anti-Putin uh, uh, strategy. Now, in terms of entering the conflict, um, there's a much greater probability with Belarus than Hungary. And the reason is uh, uh, the president of Belarus is an autocrat. So Belarus is a dictatorial country. So he's an autocrat and much more at the mercy of Putin than the prime minister of Hungary, uh, who's uh, trying to maintain an energy supply, but is otherwise completely integrated with the West. So it's just inconceivable that Hungary would enter, uh, you know, on the side of Russia. There's no way that it's going to happen. Okay. Would it be correct to characterize the war in Ukraine as a war basically symbolically and practically between democracy and authoritarianism. Yeah. Um, so Ukraine is more democratic than Russia. Uh, I think everybody would agree with that. But at the same time, uh, uh, it's uh, the conflict is not one between democracy and authoritarianism, even though Ukraine is more democratic than Russia. Uh, countries go to war, not ideologies or systems of government. So, but the thing about this democracy versus authoritarian is not that it's accurate or correct, but it's useful. Nothing rallies support for a conflict better than framing it as a more titanic and world-changing struggle than it actually is. This is not uh, World War II where uh, 
you know, uh, Nazi Germany had global ambitions and it really was a titanic struggle between, uh, you know, uh, the forces of darkness and the forces of light or however you want to call it. And losing really meant uh, uh, some really bad things happening. You know, ultimately, this is a regional conflict that will get resolved and, uh, you know, democracy will go on and authoritarianism will go on. And so, uh, you know, I don't blame the Ukrainians and their allies for trying to portray the conflict in this way because it it uh, is good for attracting uh, other support. Yes. But it's really, you know, uh, uh, I don't buy it. No, you don't buy it. But I don't buy it at all. You, you you talk to Germany, you talk to EU, uh, the NATO countries. They view it. They they feel threatened. They feel that if we allow Ukraine to fall, they're next. And they do. Well, that that's the you know apropos of the consequences of Russia winning. So in answer to the previous question, uh, the former Soviet republics. Just to re repeat myself. If Russia wins this conflict, they do need to worry. Not just about, you know, greater Russian influence, but about actually uh, potentially a military invasion, which they already did in Georgia in 2008. So there's already a precedent for invading a former Soviet state. I don't think the East European countries, the NATO members in Eastern Europe uh, need to worry about this as much. Okay. Do you foresee an alliance among countries such as Iran, North Korea, Russia, Syria, and China, and more countries? Which other countries might join them? Yeah. Uh, well, if you give me that list, so... You know, the question is, what would unite all, you know, the question you have to ask yourselves is, what would unite all of those countries? And I can think of uh, of one thing that unites all of those countries, and that's a desire to contain U.S. influence. Yes. So, uh, you know, I suppose something like that could form. Uh, maybe also along with Venezuela. So if you narrow it to... Uh, targets of U.S. Uh, uh, targets of international sanctions. If you narrow the the commonality to targets of U.S. sanctions, you could add Venezuela and maybe take out China. Uh, 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 you know, and then have like some some interest that they all have in common. Uh, I don't see something like this, especially with those countries. Uh, uh, as very likely to happen. So, so let me just give you a few reasons why. Uh, first, if you include China, uh, it's unlock. You know who's going to be the leader of this alliance: Russia or China? Russia's going to want to want to be a leader, and China's going to want to be a leader. And uh, they can't both be leaders, probably. And so, there's a conflict right there uh, that seems to me. Uh, would th that would uh, mean that its actions as an alliance would be uh, highly constrained because they probably wouldn't, you know, it's unclear whether they could agree on anything because they both have these aspirations uh, of this great power status. But let's take out China and leave the rest with Russia. So 
in, you know, Iran, North Korea, Venezuela, I don't know what else. Russia's clearly the big cheese in this partnership. Um, so the question is, what's in it for Russia? The Russians already cooperate, cooperate with Iran in the military sphere, like with drones and maybe fighter planes, uh, unclear exactly what they're doing, but they're cooperating military, militarily without an alliance. The Russians are already in Syria, which you uh, also mentioned, uh, without an alliance. Russia doesn't need Venezuela's oil. So uh, it's unclear uh, what Russia gets out of having Venezuela in the alliance, since uh, it doesn't need the main thing that Venezuela exports, which is oil. Mm -hmm. A China-Venezuela alliance is much more likely than a Russia-Venezuela alliance from this perspective, because at least China, in theory, needs the oil. Mm -hmm. uh, so basically, I don't see what's in it for Russia. Um, and also, uh, it's like, uh, you know, when you think about the reasons for joining an alliance, it, it's like it, you, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. But this alliance that you're talking about doesn't make Russia more threatening than it already is. Uh, and so they just don't gain anything. Mm. With a possible exception on the margin of some prestige of sort of being at the head of a some international, not quite military alliance, it isn't even clear what kind of alliance it would be, uh, some kind of a, an alliance designed to oppose US influence. Mm -hmm. I have two observations inspired by what you just said. Okay, number one is the future's balance of global power seems to be a sort of a three-legged stool with US and uh, NATO countries, EU, and China and Russia. And ironically, Russia is shooting itself in the foot with this Ukraine war, because this Ukraine war is going to weaken Russia substantively. That's correct, yeah. So so this 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 will actually strengthen China. China, this is observation one. Observation two, China is getting the best from both worlds. And on the one hand, its vast trade and export economy depend on the West and the capitalist market. On the other hand, its political system is, is very much in sync with Russia's authoritarian system. It, Chinese Communist Party was founded upon the, the Russian uh, Bolshevik model. So, so, so China wants to be getting the best from both sides. And eventually, you know, in the Chinese, uh, there is a idiomatic description. It's like when two clams are fighting on the beach, the fisherman is the one who is winning, who will pick both fighting. Right. Okay. That's a good, that's a good saying. That's a good Chinese saying. Yeah. So China actually is the fisherman. Yes. Yes, indeed. So in this, in this conflict, Russia will be weakened. U.S. will be weakened, EU will be weakened, I mean, NATO will be weakened, no matter what. In the Russia-Ukraine conflict, you mean? Yes. Yeah. And then China will be getting the oil 
buying the oil from uh, Russia that equals to bankrolling and supporting the, the Russians. Yeah. And then trying to be the broker, the honest broker. I don't know how honest that is. So I I don't know if the politicians are thinking like this. Um, I, you know, uh, I doubt it. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I don't really have that much connection with the people that are truly in the uh, decision-making thing, but, um, uh, uh, you know, China, so, so, uh, it's not clear that the U S is weakened by the Ukrainian war. Uh, uh, in fact, uh, to the extent that, uh, Ukrainian use of arms and other things, uh, uh, stimulates, uh, you know, American and European companies to, uh, you know, make more arms or could actually be, a, you know, war is actually in some ways good for the economy. Uh, uh, there's an argument to be made for that. So it isn't so clear that the U.S. and Russia is definitely weakened. Yes. The, the only country in this con that's even peripherally involved in this conflict that is weakened is Russia. Now, not just because of its battlefield losses, but because of it, it it basically destroyed uh, the reputation that it enjoyed in people's heads as being kind of the second military in the world. Uh, uh, the performance uh, in Ukraine has revealed uh, Russia uh, uh, to be in some ways a hollow military power. Mm -hmm. uh, it's taken them a year, even, you know, okay, the uh, U.S. is supplying arms, but it, it's still taken them a year uh, to make very little headway in a country that's, uh, you know, one third the size and, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, dwarfs Ukraine uh, in multiple, in multiple ways. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that helps China, you know, so a weak Russia helps China. That um, is true. Yes. Yes. That is unquestionably true. I'm yes. not sure the U S is weakened. Uh, I don't think that's the biggest, uh, uh, weakness of the uh, of the U.S. I, you know, I, I think our domestic troubles yes. are uh, a much greater factor weakening us than these foreign adventures. I agree. I have yeah. those questions down my list. Okay, so what's your assessment for the possibility of a third world war? What can the United States and the world do now and in the future to prevent it? Yes. Um, okay, let's break this up into two parts. Uh, I think it's a, a good way to do it. Uh, if by a third world war, uh, if by that you mean an all-out nuclear exchange among the large nuclear powers, uh, then notwithstanding uh, Russia's recent saber-rattling about nuclear weapons, so there are various threats emanating from Moscow about the use of nuclear weapons, I think the probability of this uh, is is low, relatively low, though not as low as it should be. So we all want it to be really low, but it's still low. Um, now, uh, the nuclear, as they say, the nuclear genie is out of the ball. You can't uninvent nuclear weapons. They're out there. So uh, there are, are really only two means uh, that uh, seem to be feasible right now for uh, keeping the probability of that conflict low. One is to maintain uh, the so-called MAD strategy, Mutual Assured Destruction, MAD. 
uh, to maintain the strategy of man, which is mad, which is uh, if you want to start one, you better uh, be uh, ready for your own complete destruction. So it's like a self, you know, it's like a suicide uh, to do that. So that already, uh, you know, uh, you know, dampens things, uh, you know, makes assumption that people don't, uh, that a country doesn't want to commit suicide, uh, which may or may not be a good thing, but it, you know, it's something um, that dampens down the probability. And the second thing that we can do um, is kind of at the launch stage to make sure that uh, for one thing, uh, not just one person and maybe not just a few people can unilaterally launch a weapon. So it's like the president has the codes and then uh, someone has to do something like in the submarine or whatever to do it. And there might be, you might need two people to do that. So you, you make the actual decision to push the button. It's not actually pushing a button. It's sending a code and relying on other people to use their good judgment to uh, uh, decide whether to do it. So you take it out of hands of one person and you uh, uh, make it uh, less likely that uh, something like this could happen by accident. In other words, the means by which you detect uh, nuclear uh, launches and weapons have to be good enough to make sure that uh, something uh, you know can't be mistaken for a nuclear weapon. And there have been a couple of close calls, uh, which hopefully they fixed. Hmm. So that's at the level of the traditional great power nuclear war. Mm -hmm. okay. Now uh, I have less good news about the other op, uh, you know, the other kind of third world war, uh, which is that a rogue state or a a group would. Uh, gain access to a nuclear weapon and then launch an attack that might trigger a larger conflagration. And this thing, I think, as time goes on, this possibility gets higher over time. Uh, and frankly, you know, very worrying even now. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the only solace I take on this issue is that, um, first of all, it is not easy to develop nuclear weapons. Uh, it takes a long time. A lot of, you know, things have to come together. Uh, it's been done by states. It's hard to, uh, it's hard to do, to do by, uh, by a group. Uh, so they're hard to develop. And even if you have them, it's not like uh, carrying a gun around where you can just carry it around and then use it when you want to. I mean, these things uh, uh, are, are delicate. They have to be handled with care. It's not easy to deliver them, even if you have them. Mm -hmm. But I worry about the second option more than the first option. Yes. Yes. I me too. Now, next question. The number of mass shootings in the US are more than the number of days since 2023 started. Okay, I didn't know that, but uh what interesting yeah. if depressing um, fact. According to CNN. Okay. Yeah. What can be done about it? And we did talk about earlier that what is more dangerous to cause the fall of our democracy is is from within rather than from foreign forces. Right. So, no. Okay, mass shootings. Um, so, the way that I 
uh, view this uh, is you have, and I'm not the only one that sees things this way, uh, is that you have three ways to intervene. There's means, there's opportunity, and then motive. And I want to take them each in turn. So the means, i.e. the gun, access to the gun. Um, we seem, uh, at least in the US, at least at the level of national policy, this seems to be the primary way we're dealing with the problem. So, you know, the ban on assault weapons, which lessens the, uh, uh, you know, uh, ability of, uh, you know, uh, the shooter to fire off a hundred, you know, bullets, uh, you know, at a time. Uh, keeping guns away from crazy people. So in other words, background checks. Other means to like, uh, you know, restrict access to the means for committing the shooting. Now this helps uh, obviously a lot. Uh, you know, if crazy people don't get uh, guns, then, uh, you know, you're probably gonna uh, make it less likely to have mass shootings. Uh, but uh, I think it is also in insufficient, at least in the medium term even if you could repeal the second amendment. So the second amendment is looming in the background here, the right to bear arms. So even if you could repeal, somehow repeal the second amendment, uh, there would still be millions of guns that are already around. So maybe in the long, long term, uh, that would work because eventually uh, the gun, you know, the guns would get old uh, and you wouldn't have new guns replacing them, but um, uh, you would still have these millions of guns. So, I think these restrictions, uh, while helping, are not uh, really going to ultimately solve the problem, even though that's what we seem to apparently focus on. So then there's opportunity. So in addition to controlling the availability of the weapon, we've actually, uh, although it's more, uh, you know, uh, you know, less obvious at the national policy level, changing our built environment in ways that minimize opportunity. So metal detectors, locked fences, guards, the TSA when it comes to airplane, you know, when it comes to airplanes, uh, but also, uh, you know, uh, people have the guns and you're just not letting them into the areas where the mass, uh, where the masses occur. So you're not giving them the opportunity to do it. So, uh, right now, it's airports, government facilities, and schools. Uh, in the future, uh, if uh, uh, if current trends continue, it's going to move to grocery stores, shopping malls. Uh, you can imagine uh, it's already this way in Israel, for example, where they're trying to keep out, uh, you know, terrorists uh, uh, with guns. So. Um, now, the issue here is that perpetrators will innovate. If you put up a locked gate, you know, it's like, build me a fence. Uh, 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 you know, you can't build a high enough fence to get people out. I mean, this is an argument against the border wall in Mexico. If you build a fence, they'll just find a way to go over the fence. So uh, people uh, innovate. And now the shooters are going to innovate. Uh, maybe it won't be guns, but maybe it will be cars, uh, rammings or knives or, uh, you know, some other things. Uh, and do we really want to live in a lockdown society?
where the security is so tight that, uh, uh, you know, uh, it's like people are uncomfortable, it's not very sociable, et cetera, et cetera. It seems like a very unpleasant means for stopping the problem, which brings us to motive. Here the questions are, why do, so there's different kinds of shootings actually. So one is uh, you're having a conflict with somebody and you use that, uh, you resolve the conflict with a gun. So why the use of gun to resolve conflicts? Or in the case of, often the case of mass shootings, um, why in the, why the use of guns in response to a mental distress uh, or, uh, uh, you know, be some kind of a, uh, uh, you know, uh, may, maybe a racist or a homophobic or, you know, whatever motive uh, you have to do that. It's like, uh, there's like a gun culture that we have uh, where we resort to guns, where uh, it seems to be, you know, if you look around the world, it's like people have conflicts all around the world, uh, but not everybody resorts to guns to resolve them. So I think the key in the long run, although not in the short run, is to try and change this culture. Oh, that's going to be hard. It is going to be hard. Uh, it's not that the other ones, you know, aren't useful, but I think they're band-aid, you know, they're bandages over the problem rather than actually going to the root of the problem, which is this motive. Oh, gosh, genie's out of the bottle for too long. January 6th insurrection made it clear that our democracy can be destroyed from within. Yeah. In the book, Ill Winds, Stanford professor Larry Diamond mentioned a list of things we need to change in order to sustain our democracy, such as ranked choice voting for primaries and the 18-year term limit for Supreme Court justices. Yeah. What are your thoughts on the specific steps we can take now to improve and sustain our democracy. Yes, so um, I agree with Larry Diamond that those would be um, those would be good things to do. Uh, so, uh, ranked choice voting is already being used in various uh, local uh, you know local elections, uh, and I think uh, the advantage of it is that it it uh, prevents a kind of split ticket voting where the person that most people don't want, more people don't want wins the election uh, because uh, there were two other candidates which split the vote, uh, which split the vote among them. Uh, the example that's always mentioned is Florida, uh, the uh, US election and uh, presidential election, Florida in 2000, when Ralph Nader and Al Gore, uh, so two kind of leftist candidates ran against George W. Bush, uh, the Republican, candidate and uh, basically Nader uh, stole enough votes from Gore that Bush, uh, you know, barely, uh, not by much, less than a thousand votes became, was declared the winner. And so ranked choice voting makes outcomes like that less likely. So, and so I think, uh, you know, overall is better for democracy. Let me list some other things uh, that he doesn't uh, talk about. Uh, one would be to, uh, you know, they're kind of related, is to strengthen Congress and uh, which would weaken the presidency. So uh, uh, get Congress to fulfill its mandate 
for let me give you an example of one thing that Congress is supposed to do that they don't do anymore, which is the power to declare war. That's the right of Congress. Congress gets us into wars, not the president. But the last time Congress declared war, uh, my memory uh, fails me, but it was like in the middle of the Second World War. And I think it was against Hungary in like 1942 or 1943, I don't recall. Every other war since then has been, you know, not quite a war because Congress didn't declare it, but but although we were involved uh, anyway. Korea, uh, you know, Vietnam, the Iraq, uh, everything else. So, so there's a, so one way to strengthen democracy would be to, uh, for Congress to exercise the powers that it's actually given uh, in the Constitution, because the Congress is what the people elect. Uh, you know, it's like the people's house. And so it would be uh, better for democracy if they did this stuff than if the president unilaterally does it. Mm -hmm. What about the term limits? So, so uh, term limits for Congress? With Supreme Court justices. Oh, so that's a Larry Diamond thing. So that, yes, that would be a very good thing. And the long, the long term is a good idea. So like 18 or 20 years, yes. uh, I think that would be a fine, you know, addition. So, yes. so one thing is Congress. And then the obverse of that is the president actually exercises so independently of the things that Congress refuses to do, for example, uh, the president does executive orders. And because Congress, you know, so because Congress is, you know, uh, deadlocked, the president uh, issues executive orders to do various things that by right should be passed as a law through Congress, such as, uh, you know, withdrawing from the uh, the JCPOA, the agreement with Iran to limit its nuclear weapons, or, uh, you know, various um, various uh, executive orders about immigration and other things, which should be law. For example, the dreamer, you know, the, all, all the stuff with the dreamers, that uh, is a result of a presidential order, I believe. So uh, it's another, th so it, it essentially makes the, uh, the individual, uh, you know, less powerful in the system, which uh, in the situation of Trump would have been a good thing for democracy if he had been hemmed in a little more. To remove the ability to do that kind of stuff unilaterally, you have to go to Congress. Uh, that's one thing. The second thing uh, that I recommend um, uh, uh, would be to lower the temperature at the national levels, for example, fights over the Supreme Court by strengthening federalism. By strengthening federalism, you put more on the states. This actually relates to gun control. So uh, you put more on the states uh, that they have to do. So the more you put, uh, the more responsibility you give to states, the less, the lower the stakes for controlling national office. So for example, take the second amendment, take gun control, which we talked about already. Right now it's all the federal level, huge fights for Supreme Court justices and, and so on and so forth in order to uh, you know make this go one way or the other uh, in regard to the second amendment. If you return all of that to the states, uh, 
uh, it's not a perfect solution to the problem, but blue states will be able to enact draconian gun control laws. Well, it doesn't. And red states, no. So, and, re, you know, so uh, the idea would be that, uh, you know, you allow uh, blue states to do what they want and red states to do what they want. Uh, and then the, the scope of the federal government, if you will, then uh, uh, retreats. Now, there are some downsides to this. Uh, uh, or, or, or abortion, for example. Abortion, for example. Oh, let's talk about the gun control, okay. Okay, a gun control. California has the most stringent gun control laws. Yeah. But, like, what happened during the lunar year, two mass shootings, one is by people in their 70s and late 60s. So this you know, one old man just killed yeah. people in a dance studio. The next day, another pretty old man, uh, not as old, killed uh, co-workers in the Half Moon Bay. And yeah. so these people, they can just get guns, those semi-automatic guns from Nevada, yeah. from other neighboring states without a federal gun control law. So... Well, so, uh, you know, uh, Nevada, so, uh, you know, there are ways around that. For example, uh, if, you know, if I'm in Nevada, so you're quite right, uh, it's possible. First of all, it's more difficult to do that. So you do lower. So, you know, you know, in terms of means, it's still harder to, you know, on the margin, it makes it harder to get guns. Uh, uh, you know, Nevada... Uh, could require ID. I mean, you know, maybe there are ways around that, but, uh, uh, you know, if the, so, so the question was, how do we save, and now we're talking about the national level democracy. And the way to, the way to save the rancor, you know, the way to counter the rancor at the national level, because everything revolves around control the presidency, the Supreme Court, uh, uh, et cetera. So that, ha you know, uh, how we live our daily lives depends on who's uh, in these places, uh, who, who's in these positions. So by turning more over to the states, you make less things, fewer things uh, um, in danger, uh, in danger if the wrong party gets into the national office. So blue states will have draconian, uh, blue states will have draconian gun control and extremely liberal abortion laws, and red states will be the opposite. That's how, well, you know, that's what the lay of the land will be. Now, these issues like going to another state, you know, so uh, it's true. So blue people in red states are going to go to blue states to get abortion, you know, would go to blue states to get abortion, which probably they're already doing now. Uh, and then red people in blue states, uh, they really want their guns, would probably go to red states uh, in order to buy the guns. Now you could legislate in a way that would make that more difficult, but you're you're never going. You know, in a free society, you're never going to have a hundred percent. The question is, what can you do? Uh, what can you do to make it less likely? Hmm. And your intervention in in the terms of gun control, you know, you can restrict the means, you can restrict the use of guns. Uh, uh, you can make it less uh, so, uh, uh, you know, you could have uh, metal detectors as you're going into your workplace, which would have removed, you know, which would have caught 
we're going, you know, uh, like at the airport, a, a guard there uh, with a metal detector and then searching your bag. Uh, and that would have prevented the shooting. So there's a, uh, you can uh, be more restrictive in the means. You can have the metal detectors uh, and then try, uh, I don't know the motives of these people, uh, try to make headway on the motives. And so the idea is to do as much as you can to lower that, but you're never going to get it to zero in a free society and possibly not even in an unfree society. So for example, in J you probably read about what happened in Japan and the assassination of the former prime minister. You know, uh, this is like uh, a, a once in a century happening uh, in Japan. Uh, it's against the culture. Uh, uh, guns are uh, stringently, uh, you know, controlled. The man made his own gun. Yeah. Uh, and then because it's so unheard of, of course, there wasn't the level of security you would have in the US. Yeah. Uh, because uh, who who would think uh, that uh, uh, you know someone would murder uh, a prime minister of Japan? But it happened. So you're not going to get to zero. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but uh, that's it. Yes, but the escalation of mass shooting is intolerable. There are people who are leaving our country because they don't want to expose their kids to school shooting. Well, what, you know, I, yes, uh, I'm one of those people. I'm not leaving, but, uh, you know, I'm one of the people that thinks about it. Uh, I have a great schooler, you know. Uh, we cannot go on like this. Something needs yeah, to Yeah, you're, you're right. But the, the question is what, we, you know, uh, you know, what do we do about it? So in, in the case of schools, you know, they're, reducing the opportunity. So there are now metal gates uh, that are locked. Uh, uh, there aren't metal detectors yet, uh, at least in maybe in grade schools, but there might be in, in like high schools, I don't know, uh, where the kids are older and you never know. Uh, I think, you know, that's how they're trying to, uh, you know. Hope. Now other countries are not like this. That is true. That's why that's that that's why I was uh, harping on the gun culture. Even if you uh, even if you let's let's engage in a hypothetical, a counterfactual. Let's say we give ten thousand guns to Japanese in Japan. I doubt that a single one would actually be used to commit a match a mass shooting. So even with the means, so, uh, you know, there are countries where people are armed, like Switzerland. Uh, uh, where you don't have mass shootings. So I hate the term because it's, it's used uh, in a facile way, but there's a grain of truth to this idea that guns don't people, but people kill people. Uh, okay, you know, I, I, I'm not using that to excuse the presence of guns, but... Uh, if we look around the world, uh, there are countries that uh, are much more armed that don't have our level of mass shootings. Even in Israel, which has to deal uh, uh, with a you know a sui generis set of problems. So Israel, in some ways, is not a good case, but I mention it 
for this reason, uh, which is that, uh, have you ever been there? No. So there are soldiers walking around with rifles on their uh, arms everywhere, on the bus, on the train, uh, walking along the streets. Uh, the incidence of mass shootings by, uh, you know, uh, one Israeli citizen against, I'm not talking about the conflict with the Palestinians. Uh, I'm talking about one uh, Israeli citizen against a mass of others is uh, uh, extremely low, despite the prevalence of guns. And I'm sure Israel has mentally disturbed people, just like the United States. Uh, people who you know have grievances yes so what's wrong with americans well i mean you know this is a uh uh i don't know the answer to this uh i i, I it's definitely a cultural thing i think uh it's definitely cultural. america wasn't like this we did so, shootings uh, like this. that is true uh and, uh, you know, I don't really have, you know, uh, too much special insight into this. Uh, you know, when I look at Europe, for example, uh, versus the U.S., um, I see, for example, much stronger families. In where? In Europe. Okay. Much stronger families uh, in Europe on average than in the U.S. Mm -hmm on average. Obviously, there's a big heterogeneity. Europe's not itself homogeneous. Uh, and I think it's like, a, you know, it's like, it's like home, you know, it's, it's like if we think about homeless, uh, it's not like in Europe, you don't have people that would be homeless. It's just that uh, they're in the care of their, you know, uh, it's like either extent, either their nuclear family, or maybe their extended family, or maybe their community there's like more care for them. And so it doesn't manifest itself uh, in the same kind of way where you have people that are seem to be detached from their uh, families and communities. Do you have stronger families in Israel than in the US? Extremely strong. Yes, see, yes. Now, America was not like this 40 years ago, 30 years ago, even 20 years ago. The mass shooting is escalating exponentially in the, in the last 10 years i don't uh except for the so uh, the only uh the only thing and it's a significant thing that has changed in the last 10 years so it's not the level of craziness or mental illness i don't think that's changed uh it is the prevalence of social media and this idea that by doing a shooting, you immediately become, uh, uh, for good reasons or, you know, for, for bad reasons, excuse me, uh, you become like a media star. And you become a media star on, you know, there are a thousand Twitter posts, uh, uh, you know, you get everywhere. And, you know, for people that are, uh, you know, uh, mentally disturbed this might be a way of kind of making a splat you know having an impact uh, a broader impact that they would never have uh uh been able to have before it used to, 40 years ago when you did a mass shooting it got reported in the local newspaper 
uh, maybe a national newspaper, depending on how egregious it was, uh, but then it never went any further. Yeah, okay. Well, social media is available in Japan, in Europe, yeah. in Israel. Same social media. But they don't have the culture. The, the point is they don't have the culture to begin with. Oh. They're lacking the culture. The question is if you have the culture uh, and you have the means uh, uh, and you have the opportunity, why don't you do it? Oh, gosh. Because, right. yeah. But, you know. Something must be done. I don't, uh, you know, I wish I had uh, more insight, but I just don't. Okay. Yeah. Now, you studied anti-Semitism, so. Yes. I have a very uh, rudimentary question, okay? Yeah. How is anti-Semitism different from and or similar or the same as racism, what is the root cause? Of anti-Semitism? Yeah. How is it different from all Well, the whole, you know, of course, the whole, the whole uh, podcast could have been about just this question. Uh, nonetheless, uh, uh, I will, uh, I, I'm going to give it a stab. Um, so they're similar in the following way, at least. In both cases, a group of people are othered in some way. And then uh, they're othered in a way which allows discrimination against them seemingly without regard for whatever uh, individual characteristics the victim has. Other than the, other than, uh, you know, uh, being Jewish uh, in the case of anti-Semitism and being, uh, uh, well, I mean, uh, you know, uh, in the case of anti-Black racism, being African-American. But there can be racism against other groups. Uh, as, you, as you're probably aware, recently, for example, against Asian-Americans, who have also been othered, uh, 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 you know, in the same way. Uh, they're different in the sense that... Um, yeah, so a form of stereotyping. Uh, uh, they're different in the sense that uh, anti-Semitism has sometimes been racialized, uh, but it's not always racialized. Uh, but it's not always racialized. So the thing about racialization is that you uh, the person can't do the, the the person in the stereotyped group. You can't change your race. You might claim to be a different, but ultimately, in the eyes of the racist, you're that race, uh, no matter what you claim. So uh, you can't claim. So there, there's no way, for example, um, uh, in the case of racism or racialized anti-Semitism, to kind of escape your fate. Right. So uh, that's a very important uh, distinction uh, between racism, which is kind of a you know, uh, something immutable that you can't change versus, for example, uh, uh, anti-Semitism that's rooted in religious bigotry. Oh. So, for example, uh, uh, you know, Jews, uh, you know, for hundreds of years in Europe uh, were discriminated against be 
basically because they weren't Christians. Uh, uh, you know, sometimes they were blamed for crucifying Christ uh, by the, uh, uh, you know, by the Christians. And they, uh, you know, sort of didn't go along with, uh, uh, since the most of the countries were, you know, overwhelmingly Christian, sort of didn't belong to the mainstream group. And so um, this, uh, you could actually uh, uh, get out of this, for example, by converting to Christianity. So if you convert to Christianity, uh, you uh, essentially, essentially escape uh, this uh, you know, stereotype and then you can live your life uh, you know, as a Christian. And so this was, this was, this, this is not an option available to the victims of anti-racist, uh, contemporary anti-racist, uh, uh, excuse me, contemporary racist, uh, attacks where if they see you're Asian or they see your, uh, you know, African-American, you just get attacked. Yes. Got it. So um, the root cause is, uh, you know the the, the uh, uh, you know no one really knows the root cause. Uh, in the case of anti-Semitism, um, I would say uh, it became a kind of a global thing, as opposed to a local thing, when um, after Christianity became prominent, uh, you know, in the Roman Empire. Then it kind of got into the, you know, it it wormed its way into the DNA of the state. Now, it's a complicated story because Jews weren't persecuted at, at all times and in all places. It was very, you know, if you look at it, it's very varying. But, uh, you know, it basically starts out with a universal church, Roman Catholicism. And there's this religious strain uh, that goes through things. And uh, they were... Uh, you know, sometimes massacred as a, uh, a consequence, but sometimes just discriminated against or or a forced to segregate themselves from the rest of society. And because they were segregated, both uh, geographically and in terms of like their occupations, for example. So, for example, uh, Jews uh, were the ones that were allowed to lend money because interest was prohibited uh, you know, the church prohibited, uh, you know, interest, uh, charging interest for loans. So uh, they gave this to Jews and, and what this evolved into. So the Jews uh, uh, start specializing in banking because it's something that they are allowed to do. Uh, and then anti-Semitism evolves uh, into this uh, kind of uh, an anti-capitalist thing or an anti-money thing. Uh, where the Jews are seen to be, uh, you know, interested, in, you know, interested uh, more than other people in money. Mm. So it evolves from a religious thing into a kind of, well, uh, another stereotype. Uh, it's one uh, uh, of the Jew as a swindler or the Jew as a greedy banker. And you can see caricature, caricatures of this, uh, you know, historically, mostly in Europe. So this is basically a European uh, European phenomenon. And even later, ironically enough, uh, you get a, a, a another evolution uh, 
because when uh, communism gets going in the 19th, you know, uh, socialism gets going in the 19th century, uh, and especially in the 20th century, uh, a lot of uh, 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 Jewish people were, or at least nominally Jewish people, were sort of, uh, you know, uh, involved with the Communist Party. Like, especially in Russia and Eastern Europe, uh, there were uh, not so much at the mass level, but at the elite level. So like the leaders of the parties, uh, you know, Leon Trotsky, for example. Uh, so you could point to many of the old Bolsheviks who were at least born Jewish, whether they didn't, they didn't practice, but they're born, uh, they're born that way from Jewish parents. And so then the stereotype becomes the Jews as communists. So the interesting thing about it is you have the Jew as capital is hyper capital, like the Jew as banker and the Jew as communist. And each stereotype sort of gets invoked when it's needed uh, in order to do whatever the anti-Semite needs to do. I see. Just, yes. Victimizing. So that's why they call anti-Semitism shape-shifting. Oh. Because depending on when, what period you look at it and where you look at it, the stereotype can actually be different. Yes. But no matter what periods of history, humanity, the bad part of humanity, of course, always want to scapegoat some group based on their quote-unquote otherism, uh, whether it was communism or that they're labeled with or it's greedy bankers who they're labeled with or whatsoever okay it, it's just that it's a prejudice it's a victimization so yeah, that is true yes yeah. lastly since i'm a branding expert yes I ask, I ask all my honored guests the same question at the end of the interview what does the personal brand of jason wittenberg stand for with no more than five words in other words, what do you want the world to remember you for upon exiting this planet? Okay. You have more than five words. That's fine. I'll try to summarize. No, four words. Okay. Luftmensch. <laughs> I don't know what it is. Which is a, a, a Yiddish word, which means someone who is interested in intellectual things uh, at the expense of kind of professional advancement and uh, monetary, uh, uh, you know, gain. Uh, so, uh, you know, I don't do all the things I could do in order to, you know, increase my exposure and earn as much money as possible. So uh, I'd like to engage in intellectual pursuits. That That's Luftmensch, one word. Flaneur which is uh, a word that comes from French. Uh, it Actually, we use it in English also. It's not commonly used. Is someone uh, who is kind of a wanderer and likes to take in, uh, it's usually used in an urban context. It's like you wander around the town and you just kind of uh, take in the city and respond to the various uh, slices of life that a city offers. So I love doing that. Um, Polyglot. Uh, uh, I don't speak many languages fluently, but I know uh, a number of languages at varying levels of uh, knowledge. And it's also self-referential 
because both Lufmich and Flanur are not English words. So the polygot part is like self-referential within the brand name. Uh, uh, and then finally, father. Mm. Father to how many children? One child. Okay. Son, daughter? A daughter. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this in-depth discussion. Uh, I've learned a lot. And the world is a fragile place. The democracy is a fragile thing. And our country is not in good shape. And we all have duty to make it better, to make our democracy better, better to make our culture better, to deal with the gun violence. And it's truly um, very uh, enlightening to discuss with you about all these issues and about the Ukraine war. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot, uh, Joanna. It was a pleasure, uh, you know, uh, going around with these things. Uh, not easy uh, answers uh, to the questions, but uh, I was very happy to do it. Thank you.